Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, that you have given us the privilege to call you our Father. You sent your only Son to die on the cross for our sins. Words cannot express our gratitude. Thank you, Father. <clears throat> and thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. We remember that today is Pentecost Sunday when you send your spirit in power and might to dwell in us forever as a seal that we belong to you. Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your coming to live in us. We will never be alone again. We ask and pray that you will continually transform us into the likeness of Jesus so that he may be glorified in our lives. Lord, this is our humble prayer and desire. Father, we confess our sins before you and we ask for your forgiveness for the many ways we often fail, even in the simple things that you have desired of us. Yet your love, yet you love us exceedingly and your forgiveness for us is boundless. Please cleanse us and renew us from the inside by the power of your spirit as you have promised and create us hearts that long after you. Heavenly Father, we pray for the nations around us. There is great turmoil and pain that millions suffer today because of the wars. Wars that rage when angry men and governments do not know how to seek peaceful means to resolve disagreements. Forgive us, Lord, and in your great mercy, grant that there may be peaceful resolutions to the conflicts. We especially lift before you the war in Ukraine and tensions in other parts of the world. We pray for those who suffer and ask that you would reveal yourself to them in these difficult times. Father, we pray for our country. We ask that you will protect this nation which you have brought forth and that you will grant the leaders wisdom in leading the country. We ask for a revival in this land. <clears throat> Send your spirit to work in a new and mighty way in the hearts of men and women, beginning from us, that many may come to know you. Father, we pray for our church and for ourselves. Forgive us when we live as if our first priority is to be an engineer or a professional rather than our first priority being a child in your family. May you help us to be salt and light here in the Silicon Valley to share the love of Jesus. We ask for your protection for our, for our pastors and elders as they guide us in the church, your body. Grant them unity and wisdom as they wrestle with difficult dis decisions. And grant us, Lord, your your people, humble hearts to accept your will through the leadership, that we may be one in unity, even as the Father and Son are one. Father, we pray for those amongst us who are going through difficult times. 
In your great mercy, please draw them close to you that they might experience the peace and joy that comes only from you. Lord Jesus, you said that in this world we will have trouble, but in you we will find peace and joy. We thank you that you have overcome the world and that through you we also may be overcomers. Father, guide Eugene as he brings the word to us today. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. We long to hear from you. We pray all this in the name of our precious Lord Jesus, as you have taught us. Amen. Now for our scripture reading. It's uh, taken from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Um, it's, uh, Eugene has chosen the words of the Lord delivered through the prophet in this passage. We're reading from the New uh, Living Translation. Now we all get to participate. So please read aloud with me. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike, and I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth. But everyone who calls to the name of the Lord will be saved. Eugene, please come and share. Brothers and sisters, the scripture we just read together has been fulfilled. It comes to us as a promise that God has fulfilled for us. Through the prophet Joel, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, God had promised, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And 10 days after Christ ascended to the right hand of God, on the 50th day after Christ's resurrection from the dead, God indeed poured out his spirit on Christ's disciples and fulfilled his promise. Christ had told his disciples this would happen, commanding them before he ascended, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Christ explained what the Spirit would empower them to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Through Joel, God had promised that his spirit would cause his people, whether men or women, old or young, masters or servants, he would cause them all to dream dreams and to see visions, the hallmarks of Old Testament prophetic ministry. In other words, his people, regardless of their sex, age, or status, would all be empowered to prophesy God's truth to the world whether that be through a shoebox or in a prison cell, or in Christ's words, to be his witnesses, to testify to his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, and to do this in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And just as Christ said, so it happened, as recorded in the second chapter of Acts, 
When the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blow, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. God poured out his spirit on his people, and as a preview of what he would accomplish through them and the church that would be born that day, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, they exclaimed. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Peter went on, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The Spirit who provided these words to Peter also made them effective When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. Some 3,000 people answered the call that day. God poured out his spirit on Christ's disciples, and through their spirit-empowered witness, the church was born. Brothers and sisters, we remember the outpouring of the spirit today, the day of Pentecost. And we do more than remember. We receive that outpouring as well. We welcome the Spirit of God into our lives to make us Christ's witnesses alongside every generation of the church since that first Pentecost. And that includes the Colossian believers. In our passage for today, Colossians 4, 5-6, having asked them to pray for his own gospel ministry, the Apostle Paul challenged the Colossian believers to participate in it as well. He gave them three commands to shape their witness to the world, and that should shape ours as well. So let's walk through each of them together this Pentecost. First, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. The Greek word translated as the way you act more literally refers to walking. In the ancient world, walking was a common metaphor for a person's lifestyle. The New International Version, then, is not wrong at all to translate the command in this way, be wise in the way you act. 
but perhaps it misses the image Paul was conjuring, walking down a dirt road, watching where you put your feet, and being mindful of the others sharing the road with you, even if only for a time. That last part, sharing the road with others, was certainly on Paul's mind when he issued this command. The Colossian believers lived among outsiders, that is, non-believers. Their lives intersected unavoidably with those who did not believe or even know the gospel of Christ. In our context, it is possible to live much of our lives without intersecting significantly with non-believers. We can construct our lives in such a way that we end up spending most of our time with other Christians, reading Christian books, listening to Christian music, and even watching Christian movies. It is possible, however inadvisable, to insulate ourselves in our Christian communities. But this was simply impossible for the Colossian believers. There just weren't enough of them. So whether they were going to, the, to work or to the market or to see their friends or family, their paths would intersect significantly with non-believers. And so Paul urged them, therefore, to be wise in how they walked those paths and as we'll see in the rest of the commands, his concern in this passage wasn't for the stability or purity of their religion, but for the impression their lives made on non-believers. Consider the parallel command Paul gave to the Thessalonian believers. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of other outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Why seek to lead a quiet life? Well, the idea here is to live as a person of peace, not needlessly creating conflict. Mind your own business, Paul said. To be sure, there are times when it is wholly appropriate for tables to be flipped and temples to be cleansed. But even in those times, our goal ought to be, as it was for Christ, to offer refuge and sanctuary to the hurting people of this world. If the Thessalonian believers kept to this, they would win the respect of outsiders, perhaps piquing their interest in the gospel of Christ. But how could the Thessalonian believers, or the Colossian believers, or really any believer, do this if they themselves were full of turmoil and insecurity, gossip and backbiting, selfishness and entitlement? And on that note, how could believers win the respect of outsiders if all they did was judge and condemn them? As Paul corrected the self-righteous Corinthian believers, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Why are those in the church to judge those inside? Well, the context shows that Paul was concerned with the Corinthian believers' willingness not to condemn one another, but to hold one another accountable for behavior inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. Instead of wasting time judging those who do not subscribe to the gospel, Christians lovingly should hold one another accountable. From these passages, two of the only ones where Paul referenced outsiders, we see that Paul's command to walk wisely among non-believers is about being people of peace who endeavor to live consistently with the gospel. He had in mind the fuller, deeper wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of character, character that creates peace in a world that knows so little of it. By the same token, walking wisely toward non-believers has nothing to do with judging their behaviors and lifestyles. 
if they do not subscribe to the gospel. Even if there are times when, like Peter on Pentecost, we must call out the ways the people of this world have crucified Christ, we remember being ourselves among those who shouted, crucify. We recognize ourselves in the face of unbelief, and we engage non-believers with empathy grounded in our shared humanity. Why? Because our goal is not the condemnation of the world, but its redemption. Our goal is to open wide the doors and to level out the paths and to remove any hurdles we can for outsiders becoming insiders, for outsiders becoming friends, brothers and sisters, fellow children of God. So we walk wisely toward outsiders. We allow their lives to intersect with ours. And while we're, in, while we're together, we show them the wisdom and the character and the goodness of Christ in the way we live. And we use every opportunity we have to do it. The second command Paul gave to the current Colossian believers was to make the most of every opportunity. Paul issued the same command to the Ephesian believers using much of the same language. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The Greek verb translated as make the most in both, both verses comes from the marketplace. It referred to purchasing something, to buying something up, to getting a good deal. It could also be used to describe redeeming a slave and restoring their freedom. In Ephesians, Paul spoke of redeeming evil days. Instead of allowing their days to be used for evil, the Ephesian believers were to reclaim them, to buy them up, to get the deal that was presented to them, and to use them for God's purposes. Paul probably had something similar in mind in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Make the most of every opportunity. His point was, don't waste your life. Don't waste the opportunities God has given you. Buy up every chance God makes available and use them to reveal the gospel of Christ. Don't waste your life, but make the most of it. And Paul's logic behind this was simple. If Christ is truly risen, reigning, and returning, then the only reasonable way to view the time we spend this side of the coming kingdom is as an opportunity to prepare ourselves for it and to bring others into it. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is optional because everything else is temporary. Now, of course, everything else can help us pursue this kingdom. Everything else can be used to introduce others to this king. Education and jobs and money and homes and coffee and croissants, these are all useful tools for making the most of every opportunity. But only when our goal is clear. Only when our identities are centered and our intentions are formed only when we are centered around Christ and his return does everything find its place without becoming an idolatrous distraction. And believers can make the most of every opportunity. Now we must acknowledge the tragic and shameful fact that versions of this rhetoric, versions of what I've just said, have been used to justify the neglect and outright abuse of spouses, children, families, friends, and personal holistic health. 
The path we walk is littered with those wounded by the so-called mission-minded, and often with them too, themselves, casualties of their own unresolved issues they used gospel ministry to mask or to repress. The truth we must remember is that the first recipient of gospel ministry is ourselves, then those closest to us, then those whom God causes to cross our paths, just as Christ commissioned the disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, so we must first allow the gospel to minister to us and to those nearest to us so that no one will fail to receive what we share with the ends of the earth. Making the most of every opportunity, in other words, begins here, at home, in the ordinary moments of our days, in the interactions and conversations we so often take for granted. Make the most of these, Paul commanded. And that brings us to Paul's third command. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't until the third command that Paul addressed the Colossian believers' speech? Many churchgoers think of gospel ministry as a verbal activity, but for Paul, it started with behavior and attitude, how we walk the road of life and what we value. But Paul knew that sooner or later, speech would be involved. So he urged the Colossian believers to let their conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, the Greek word translated as grace was typically used by other writers in Paul's day as a synonym for kindness or benevolence. To most readers, then, letting one's conversation be always full of grace would have meant conversing gently and mercifully. Paul, however, commonly used the word grace to refer specifically to the grace of God, not only his unmerited favor, but also the power he gives to enable his people to do his will. From Paul's writings alone, we might interpret letting one's conversation be always full of grace to mean relying on God to kindly supply us with words and effectiveness when speaking with non-believers. Now, we don't have to choose between these interpretive options. Both are appropriate. But given the next phrase in the verse, we might lean towards the broader interpretation. Paul said, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, these days, saltiness has become a metaphor for bitterness or annoyance. Being salty is not a good thing. But in the ancient world, saltiness was a metaphor for goodness and usefulness. Salty things were beneficial. Salty people were worth befriending. In fact, salt itself had become a symbol for friendship. Paul's command for the Colossian believers to season their conversation with salt then meant that they should speak to non-believers with friendliness. This fits with the broader understanding of grace in the phrase before. The Colossian believers were not to be arrogant or domineering in their speech. They were not to be judgmental or condemnatory. No, they were to speak with compassionate kindness, with humility and forgiveness, not treating outsiders as just mere outsiders, but as potential friends, brothers and sisters, fellow children of God. 
Many times believers ask, how are we supposed to talk to non-believers? How do we do this? Much, much is spent, much time and money is spent on seminars and books and conferences about this very topic when all we really need to do is think about how we would talk to any of our friends. And that's it. Just be friendly. Be salty. It was in this way that the Colossian believers would know how to answer everyone. The apostle Peter gave a similar command to some of his churches. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter called his readers to think about how they would explain the gospel of Christ, the reason for the hope that they had, as evident in the way they lived. But he immediately challenged them to deliver their explanations with gentleness and respect. Respect your non-believing neighbors. Respect the non-believing culture. Can you believe that? It's strange that this has become so difficult to say, and yet this is what the scripture tells us, plainly. We do this to nullify any slander against Christ and his people. Paul likely had something similar in mind. He wanted the Colossians to be prepared to engage with non-believers he expected would be made curious by their lifestyle. But whatever answers they gave were to be offered with grace and friendliness, not criticism or scorn. Because ultimately what non-believers needed from the Colossian believers was not merely an answer to their questions. What they needed was not just some facts coldly dropped upon them, however accurately. What they needed was the truth, to be sure, but they also needed to see the power of the gospel of Christ. They needed both, the truth and the power to transform lives, the truth and the power to create true peace, the truth and the power to heal deep wounds, to motivate sincere service, and to reveal true love. Like Peter's hearers that first Pentecost, they needed the revelation of both truth and power in both word and deed, delivered through words they could understand and through lives they could reach out and touch. And just as Christ's disciples had received the Spirit of God to empower them in word and in deed, so the Colossian believers had received the promised Holy Spirit. They too were the fulfillment of God's promise delivered through Joel. They too had received power to be Christ's witnesses. So the commands Paul gave to the Colossian believers were not beyond their capacity to obey more and more individually and as a community. They had the Spirit of God. And so do we. This Pentecost, we remember that we too have received the outpouring of the Spirit, promised through Joel and fulfilled through Christ. We too have the Spirit of God. The Spirit is still empowering his people today to be Christ's witnesses. So these commands are not beyond us. We too can become people who walk wisely towards non-believers, demonstrating with our lives the content of what we believe. We too can allow our paths to intersect with non-believers, making the most of any time we are afforded together to introduce them to Christ. We too can learn to fill our speech, whether spoken aloud or typed on a website, with grace 
seasoning it with the salt of friendship so that non-believers would believe it when we say that Christ, God Almighty, wants to be their friend as well. By the Spirit poured out upon us, we can do this, brothers and sisters. So let us do this. And let us do this together. There are many ways we are already doing this here at PBCC. Over the past few weeks, we've been hearing from missions teams, Sean and Becca took to Liberia and Mexico. We heard about how they supported the ministry of the gospel there and embodied it in acts of service and friendship. We can join these trips when they happen again, brothers and sisters, and they will happen again by the will of God. But there are other ways to participate as well. As we heard from um, our brothers earlier in the service, we can, jo- excuse me, we can join Leong in his ministry to the incarcerated in Salinas, or we can join Dirk in Operation Christmas Child in reaching children and their families all over the world with the love of Christ. There are so many other opportunities as well. In case you haven't heard of them or you've just forgotten, here are a few more. We can join Courtney and Kevin in reaching out to Afghan refugee communities right here in the Bay. We can join Miel and Bernard in building friendships with our Muslim neighbors through Crescent Project. We can join Gwen and Jesus Otaku in showing San Jose's anime and manga community that they are loved just as they are. We can join Jonathan in supporting men and women in recovery through the Adopt-A-Room initiative in Oakland. We can join George and the Kids Club at Collins Elementary just down the road from where we are this morning in teaching children the truth of the Bible totally legally and with the full support of the administration. Can you believe that? We can do this, brothers and sisters. And we can join Sean and the rotating safe car park in welcoming unhoused people living in their cars into our park lot and all this to say nothing of joining Christine and the children's ministry and Becca in the youth ministry and teaching the gospel to our own young people right here, right here in our Jerusalem, at our church at PBCC. If you want to participate in the ministry of the gospel, whether here or on the other side of the world, for children or for adults, through acts of service or through gracious and friendly speech, please let us know. Take that step and send us an email. That is why they exist, brothers and sisters, not for all the spam that I get. (laughs) And if you have an idea of your own, if you're looking at this chart and you're saying, man, there's something missing here, or there's a group that needs the gospel that I'm drawn to, I'm called to. If you have an idea of your own, don't be afraid to share it. Brothers and sisters, follow the spirit leading you. We have a sister who'd like to do just that this morning. She and a few others have been putting together an opportunity to share the gospel with non-believers in a safe and dialogical way. The idea is to put on a series of dinners in the month of October for non-believers who are curious about the gospel to come and hear it explained and get the chance to ask some questions of their own. I'd like to invite this sister to come and share her heart for this proposed ministry. So Lois, would you please join me on the platform? Let's welcome her. Since February uh, of this year, I've been meeting on Zoom with Eugene and Leon Tan and Sean Reese, uh, as together we have discussed how PBCC might make space and time 
uh, use time to reach out outside our church community with a clear evangelistic message of what I will call God's rescue plan for the human race, the gospel. What is the gospel? What is its essential truth? Have you ever thought about what you might say to someone if you had that opportunity? Well, the question has been on my mind uh, in recent years because although I know the gospel for myself personally, stating it to someone who not, might not be familiar with the words and terms Christians use has been a struggle. How do I communicate this message without language we usually associate with it and do it with some measure of confidence? I want to make clear I'm not talking about arguing or pressure tactics. But some questions come to mind that I think the gospel addresses. Why is the world so broken and how can I cope with it? Is God good? How can I know God loves me personally? Is it his purpose to give me a wonderful life? Is the gospel only about receiving Christ as Savior? What does it mean to receive Christ as Savior? Is it only about receiving forgiveness and going to heaven? Why do I need a Savior? Why do Christians believe that Jesus is the only one? I am humbled and grateful for the opportunity to explore the meaning and content of the gospel with the men who have helped me think through why the gospel is so powerful and life-changing. Jesus said to believe the good news of the gospel. Two Sundays ago, and indeed today, Eugene challenged us not to sleepwalk through life, but to reawaken to the reality of God and the return of Christ, and therefore to be ready to answer his call when, by the Holy Spirit's leading, opportunities arise for us to share the good news and to do it clearly and confidently. I invite you to join me in learning how to do just that. It is, after all, great good news. Thank you. If you would like to receive prayer, you're welcome to come to the front left of the auditorium and there'll be people to receive you. But receive now this word of benediction. As you go from this place, May you go in the full power of the Holy Spirit, the power to change your lives and to fill your words with the salt of friendship, with the grace and compassion that this world so desperately needs. May God go with you. Be well and be blessed.